as we transition to a time, we're continuing our series in the book of Mark, but I want to start with a question. Have you ever had a time in your life where you've been going about something and you've totally missed the point about what you're doing? Maybe uh, the, the, the expression is that you've missed the forest for the trees. You're focusing on the little details or maybe on something that's not as important. And I'll just give you a quick example. When I, was, uh, when I was in my first year of Bible college, my first semester I kind of got through with a lot of stress and anxiety, but then I entered the second one, thought I started having figured things out, but I had started an internship, so I was doing 15 to 20 hours of work on top of full-time school, and when they say full-time school, it really means full-time, and, uh, and I started getting really stressed, and I started really worrying about my grades. And the thing with grades is that uh, it, it takes a lot of work to get up to like a 90%, but then to get like to a 95 takes like twice as much work, at least for me. I don't know if that's just my inability or whatever, but I got way too focused on my grades. I got stressed out. I got worried. I, got, I, got, I just worked really hard that semester. And I got to the end of the semester, and my, my dear wife, Karison, said, if that's what school is going to be like, I don't know if we can keep going. Because I was so stressed about school. I was no fun to be around. I hardly spent any time with her. And thankfully, she's honest and she's bold. And she had the courage to come to me and to share with me that I was, I was neglecting the reason I was in school. I was in school to learn how to be a good pastor, how to be a minister of the gospel. And I couldn't possibly do that if all I cared about was grades and all I cared about was just getting numbers on a piece of paper. And I'll tell you the truth, when, uh, when Pastor Neil interviewed me, he never asked me, what did you get in your church history one course in your first winter semester? He, ne- he didn't care. He didn't care the number I had, and I don't even remember what it was, and I don't remember anything about church. Oh, well, I'm not supposed to say that, sorry. Um, no, but it didn't matter. It really, really didn't matter what my grade was. The, the important thing was that I learned, and one of the things about ministry is learning to balance things. Learning to balance life and following Jesus and everything all together. And when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, he actually modeled this perfectly. Not just balancing things, but he, he modeled what the most important thing was all throughout his ministry. And you know, the interesting thing about Jesus, uh, his public ministry, is he, he lived approximately 33 years. And he did three years of public ministry. And he started out in his public ministry doing a lot of public things. But then as his ministry progressed, he actually spent less and less time in public and more and more time in private investing in a few people, especially the the 12 disciples. He invested more and more of his time as his life and his ministry progressed in them in private. He would pull apart from the public life and invest in them. And so the the ministry that he put intentional time and energy and effort in was that it would go beyond him. He knew his time on earth was coming to an end, but he wanted the ministry to go beyond him. Now, Jesus could have healed thousands and thousands of more people. He could have done many more miracles if he had done more public ministry. But he chose to prioritize making disciples that actually followed after him and did what what he wanted them to do. He taught them and prepared them to be disciples who make disciples. And that's the same ministry that absolutely everyone in the world is invited into, to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples. And so in, uh, in our passage today, it's from Mark 9, 30 to 41. It'll be out of the NIV on the screen behind me. 
Uh, but I'd love you to flip there in your hard copy Bible, or if you have an iBible with you, to swipe there and track along. We'll be bouncing a little bit around in there. But in Mark 9, 30 to 32, it says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They were afraid to ask him about it. You know, have you ever, uh, I don't know if you guys are readers or not, but have you ever read a story and you start feeling something for the characters? Maybe they're going through something all of a sudden that's really stressful and you start getting nervous. Or maybe they have something really happy happen to them and then you get really excited. I'm reading this, I won't even say the title of the book, but this, this fictional book. And uh, the character had something really bad happen to him. And I was so stressed out. I was so nervous for this character. Before I, I kind of had an emotional slap and I went, what am I doing wasting my energy and attention on this character? They're made up. But maybe, maybe you guys, I'm not the only one in the room. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's a movie, a TV show. We get wrapped up in these fictional people's lives, right? Because we're, we're people and we have emotions and we wonder what things are going on. But the Bible, when we read it, sometimes we don't do that, but I think we should. Because while the fictional stories we read are made up by some geek somewhere in a, that has a keyboard, the Bible is full of real stories with real people that experience real emotions. And I don't know about you, but when I read this story, when this, this true story, I actually feel a little bit bad for the disciples. Because they're with Jesus, he's taking the time out and teaching them something, and he says something, and they're too afraid to ask him about it. They don't want to ask for clarity. And I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes it's hard to ask questions. Maybe we don't want to look like a fool, or we don't want to make someone think that we don't know something. But I want to give a little bit of context here to explain maybe why they were a little afraid to ask him. This was Jesus' second time teaching that he was going to die by the hands of people, and then he was going to rise again. He was going to resurrect. And in Jewish uh, understanding, they knew that there was a resurrection. They believed in the resurrection besides some little groups. But by and large, they knew there was a resurrection. But for them, it was at the end of days. It was when everything was done, human history was done, there was going to be a resurrection. And so Jesus saying he was going to resurrect didn't, uh, wasn't that weird, except for the fact that he was going to die. He was, they knew at this point he was the Messiah. And when he first told them this, he, he, uh, the exchange goes like this. He said, uh, the, the disciples came to Jesus and uh, said, who are you? And Jesus says, well, who do, you, who do they say I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say it's Elijah, come again. Some say uh, the, uh, other things, other things. And then Peter comes to him and says, well, no, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You're the one who's going to save all of Israel. You're the one who's going to save the world. And Jesus said, that's great. This hasn't been told by you by men, but by God. God himself has revealed this to you. But then Jesus says he's going to die and rise again. And Peter comes to him and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen, Jesus. No, you're not going to die. That can't possibly happen. I won't let it happen. And what does Jesus do? For those who are familiar with it, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. If you're going to feel bad for a character or a person, feel bad for Peter in that moment. 
Because he just received one of the hardest criticisms, one of the harshest rebukes in the entire Bible. Now, I don't know about you and what you believe, but if someone calls me Satan, I, I take, kind of take a step back. I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And Peter, in that moment, he said something amazing. He said, you're the Messiah. Jesus uh, says, that's awesome. You realize that. And then he calls him Satan in the next sentence. Satan, uh, Satan was the deceiver. He's the stealer. He tries to steal, kill, and destroy. And Peter, in that moment, had lost sight of what was most important. And he didn't understand what Jesus' role was as the Messiah. And he chose instead to give in to fear, to give in to doubt, to give in to pride, and to think, well, I won't let that happen to you, Jesus. And he's used by the enemy. Right after he made this amazing claim, Peter totally missed the point of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus and his ministry, his point, is the whole Bible is a story that points towards Jesus. Jesus is the center of the whole Bible. And it's that Jesus, his death and resurrection, the cross, is the culmination of all of human history's hopes and dreams for the future. Because in the Garden of Eden, at the original sin, mankind broke its relationship with its creator. It said, we don't want you to be our God, we want to be our God. And the whole of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. And saying, one day there's going to be someone who's going to come who's going to restore that relationship. Who's going to make a way. And everything that happened in the Old Testament was pointing towards that. The whole sacrificial system was all pointing towards Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. All of the prophets, all of the people that pointed towards the one day when there would be restoration and hope and joy and God would dwell with his people once again truly was all pointing towards Jesus. That was the point of Jesus' ministry. But it happened in a way that they didn't understand. But this this whole ministry that Mark talks about is summarized in this idea of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, one uh, person says, is that Jesus sits as king on the throne of the universe. And his kingly rule, his kingdom and his reign, governs all things. And so the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule. His reign, his action, his lordship, his sovereign governance. So when, when uh, Jesus, or John the Baptist says the kingdom of God is near, and Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is near, it's saying that the time when God rules the whole earth as it should be in peace and in prosperity and in joy and in hope and no more sadness was coming near. And that was all through Jesus' ministry. That was the point But the main thing that Jesus challenges us to and the thing that we are to keep our minds on is to keep this main thing the main thing. And that's that we are to point people towards the kingdom of God is here and it's not yet. Which is an oxymoron and it doesn't quite make sense to us. But it's that Jesus is ruling and reigning and yet bad things still happen because it's not yet fully fulfilled. And the reason is because there are people who haven't yet said, yes, Jesus is my king. I want Jesus to be my king. And we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know the exact day. If you do know, please tell me because I'll sell a book and make a lot of money. But I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I'm not a heretic yet. One of these days, maybe. We'll see. Okay, I'm joking. Well, are you guys awake? I don't know. I'm not just going to say something just bad. Just Anyways, I'll go there later. Uh, But no, Jesus is coming back. Is that good news or is that bad news? 
It's good news. But do you guys know that in the Bible it says the great and the terrible day of the Lord? So it's great for those who love Jesus. It's great for those who accepted his love, who said, yes, he's the king of my heart. Anything that, that he wants me to do, I will do because he has all of my heart and my soul, my whole life. But it's terrible too. It's terrible because there are those who don't yet have Jesus as the Lord of their life. That one day every knee will bow before Jesus. But some of them will bow because they'll be forced to. And that won't be good for them. Because they'll have rejected Jesus and said, no, I don't want you to be king. So it's a great and terrible day of the Lord. Great for those who have said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Terrible for our family, our friends, our loved ones who don't yet know Jesus. That is the main thing that Jesus is saying. That we need to be ready. We need to be helping people to get ready for Jesus to come back. So Jesus here, in his ministry, he essentially takes his disciples to a nice retreat center. That's what we're hearing in his ministry. They go off to a nice retreat center. Uh, I don't know what it's called. It doesn't say. But he gives them the opportunity to rest. They've been doing public ministry. It's tiring. He pulls them aside for this season to, to teach them. And uh, this is just like some of our ladies are doing this weekend out at Camp Squia. They're on the ladies' retreat. They're getting some great teaching and energy and prayer together and uh, hopefully being refreshed. But uh, these disciples, in the next little bit, they're driving home from this great weekend retreat. And uh, they've had some rest. They've had the best teaching in the entire universe from Jesus himself. They're filled with knowledge. They're feeling rejuvenated. They're feeling ready to conquer the world. And so what kind of conversation do you think they're having on their way home? Do you think they're going, well, how can we cast out demons better? You know, there's a couple times when we haven't done it. How can we cast out demons better? How can we, how can we make it so more and more people come to know Jesus? Or uh, maybe it's about how to better love people. How can we love people better? Jesus seems to talk about that light quite a bit. How do we do that? Or maybe how do we better serve Jesus? Is there areas of our life that maybe we're not doing that quite right? Or, uh, or maybe it's about fasting. Maybe they're saying, well, when Jesus goes, we'll have to fast again. How is that going to work? No, what are, they, what are they talking about? What do you guys think? What are they talking about? Yeah, some of you guys know it. We'll read it. It's, it's verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? That's a bad sign. They weren't talking. They were arguing. What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. You ever gotten caught doing something you know you're not supposed to do, and it's who's going to be the first one to admit it? Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then to bring the point home, in verse 36, he says, He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, I'm not uh, omniscient, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that when our ladies are coming home later today, this isn't going to be the conversation in the cars. I have, I have enough faith and hope in them that that's not going to be the conversation going, which one of us is the greatest? And essentially, uh, to break it down into so we can understand what this conversation meant, it wasn't just about, like, which one of us is the greatest at, like, fishing. No, this was, like, which one of us is the most important? 
And the reason that they were wondering this and trying to debate this was because they recognized and they knew at this point Jesus was Messiah. He was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And they said, well, that's got to come with some privileges, right? Like him being the king of the whole universe. So which one of us is most important and gets to be nearest to him and gets the most like secondary glory, you know? Which one of us gets the most secondary power? Which one of us gets the most uh, praise? Which one of us gets the best? And so they're arguing and jockeying for position with Jesus going, which one of us is the best? Like Jesus obviously is the best, but which is second best? And in Mark uh, 10, 35 to 45, we're not going to read the whole thing, but James and uh, John, the sons of thunder, they ask if they can be at Jesus' right and left hand in glory, which uh, maybe doesn't make much sense to us, but that's the, the two most highest positions of power. So they're essentially asking him, can we be your top guys? Like, can we, please? And then the other disciples get mad at them because they didn't think of asking first. The Bible doesn't say that, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. They said, how dare you? We didn't think about doing that. And Jesus, uh, Jesus is uh, warning, imagine this, at the retreat center, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again in three days. And he does this teaching, they don't understand, and then they start talking about who's the greatest. Does that, does that mesh? Does that, does that seem like it goes together? Who's the, who's the most important versus, like, Jesus is going to die as Savior of the world? It doesn't really make sense, does it? They, they kind of missed the point. The whole point of the Messiah was that he came to bring people from death to life. To bring people from hopelessness to hope. To bring people from fear to friendship with God. From sadness and grief to joy and freedom. That's what Jesus did as the Messiah. And here they are bickering about which one's the greatest, which one gets the most, gains the most out of being closest to Jesus. And this argument wasn't actually unique or a one-off. Unfortunately, the, the disciples argued actually quite a bit throughout the Gospels. So some of the examples of some of the ways that they argued and bickered was uh, they argued who forgot to bring bread before Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people. They argued with teachers of the law when they were, uh, were unable to exorcise a demon earlier in chapter 9. They argue with actually a successful exorcists who don't, don't follow them. Uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And then they scoff at a woman who shows extravagant devotion to Jesus by pouring what's called alabaster perfume on his uh, feet shortly before his death. And then even at the Last Supper, even at the time of communion before Jesus is going to suffer and die, Peter is boasting to Jesus that even if all of the rest of these fools fall away, he's like, I won't. No matter what, even if you go to death, I won't fall away. They're arguing all the way. This is, this is almost a tragic comedy worthy of Shakespeare. So just picture this if you can. Some people are visual, some aren't. But just picture this, that Jesus is walking up front on stage at this great production. And you see this cross that has the, the spotlight on it. And in the background, you see these 12 dudes that are arguing and pushing each other and shoving to try and see who can get closest to Jesus and the cross. As Jesus alone and silently walks towards this cross. Because that's what happened. 
Jesus, Jesus walked alone to the cross. All of his disciples were so lost in themselves and in their fear and in their selfishness that they weren't with Jesus. Even on the night when he asked them, he said, pray for me. They kept falling asleep. And so Jesus was alone in this. And so they were trying to sort out their importance of themselves. They were focusing on these secondary things that don't matter instead of focusing on what mattered the most. And Jesus' response to their jockeying for position, he gives in uh, verse 35. And it's this paradox. It says, those who want to be first must become last and servant of all. The economy in the kingdom of God is upside down. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the lowest. If you want to be the leader, you have to serve everybody. If you want to be on top, you have to be willing to be on the bottom. And Jesus modeled this. He modeled this servant leadership. On the, uh, the night of the Passover, he knelt down and took the role that even uh, slaves uh, would have to do, which was he washed their feet. And these weren't just like they pulled out their nice socks inside their nice boots. No, these were sandaled feet that would have walked through the street that would have gotten dirty. They would have had dust on them. They probably would have had animal things on them. They would have been dirty. This was a gross job. Anyone, I don't know who you are, but everyone's feet are kind of gross. I'll just say that. That's my personal opinion. You can have a different one. But Jesus was willing to touch these 12 dudes who probably didn't have showers very often, their feet, and to wash them and clean them. That's, that's the kind of service. That's the kind of humility. That's the kind of leader that Jesus is. And that he calls all of us to be. He says, do you want to be great? Then be small. You want to be loved by God? Love the least of these. You want to be important? Be willing to be overseen, overlooked, scoffed at. Be willing to be seen as unimportant. Because then you'll be known to be great. Jesus will know that you are great if you're willing to be small. So when Jesus' followers, when they serve those without status, when they serve the least of these, you have a great example. You're following after Jesus. Jesus didn't go after the greatest people in the land. He went after the least, the rejected. And Jesus uses this person, this little human being, this child, not as an example of this is a great person that we're going to follow. In, in nowadays, children are pretty much, they're very respected, they really care, they, they have a lot of rights. But back then, uh, in Jesus' time and culture, children were the least of these. Children had no rights. Children had no say. You couldn't, uh, children, if they were there, they had to be silent, they had to be quiet. They weren't supposed to be there. They were completely subject to their father's will. Whatever their father wanted, they had to listen. And so they had no power, no status, and no rights. And so Jesus shows his great disciples, if you want to be great, subject yourself to humility and humbleness like a child. Give up your rights, give up your freedoms, and be willing to do whatever. Give humble service to the humble. And so when Jesus' followers serve those without status, they receive Jesus and the one who sent him. So Mark is writing uh, to a community in which no one is treated better than anyone else. Everyone is treated as if they were the lowest person. And there's no status in the community of God. And so this, this 
picture alone should give us opportunity to repent and go, Jesus, has there times when I think I'm better than other people? Maybe it's because I think I have a better relationship with Jesus, that maybe I'm better than those wicked sinners. Maybe I'm better than other people. But Lord, forgive us for even thinking those thoughts, let alone saying them out loud. But realizing that we are small and slight as children before God, that should evoke our love and our affection and our repentance. So Jesus gives this great example. And then the disciples are probably feeling a little bad. They're like, ah, we were arguing. We shouldn't have been arguing. We didn't want to ask these hard questions because Jesus got mad at Peter when he did that. But, or when he, he wasn't just asking questions, that he thought he was right. But then uh, John, trying to save a little bit of face, in verse 38 says, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. So he's bragging. He's like, we did something great. There's this guy that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, and, we, and he was driving out demons. He's an exorcist, but he was using Jesus' name. He said, we told him to stop because we don't know who he is. But Jesus says, don't, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. And then this great verse, 40. For whoever is not against us is for us. And then verse 41. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So a little bit of context here. In the ancient world, uh, exorcists, they tried to drive out demons. They understood there was a spiritual uh, world. Often in our culture, we don't like to think about the spiritual world because we can't control it, see it, feel it sometimes. And so anyway, so they, uh, these exorcists would be professional people whose job was to drive out demons. And they'd, some of them were uh, Jewish, some of them were whatever, and they would use whatever name of whatever deity of whatever small g god that they could think of. And they had seen that people would cast out demons in Jesus' name, so they started using his name and realized it was effective. And John, one of, his, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, recognized these exorcists didn't actually follow Jesus. They just used his name flippantly. And Jesus, rather than getting upset, rather than getting mad at him, he says this, this strange thing. He says, don't stop them. Because if they do a miracle in my name, they use his name and they cast out a demon, that's a miracle, then they can't soon curse me. They can't soon be against me if they see the power of my name at work. And so that might be a testimony to who Jesus is. And it might give them a second chance. And then he says, so whoever is not against us is for us. You know, sometimes in the world we get distracted by things. We get distracted by some things that don't matter as much. And unfortunately, churches are like this. I did uh, jokingly say I don't remember much about church history. But the... Uh, the thing that I do really remember about church history is pretty much every group of Christians in the world has, uh, has at one point or another lost sight of the main purpose of the gospel, to be disciples who make disciples. That's the great command of Jesus. The great commission is to go out into the world and to make disciples, to rain, raise them up, to train them, to baptize them in my name, and then to send them out again to make more disciples. But sometimes they get distracted by secondary matters. They go, well, your version of baptism is this, and I think it should be this. And then they fight, and they argue, and they get upset at each other, and then they make two different denominations. 
and then uh, wait 50 years and it happens again, and wait 50 years and it happens again. And sometimes in the church, we spend time, unfortunately, fighting other Christians about the definition of what it means to be a Christian rather than going out into the world and making disciples. And I'm not saying the fancy word that for this is the, the disagreement within church politics and, and theology is called polemics. Polemics are important. Doctrine and what we believe and what uh, we follow, those are very important things. So I'm not minimizing those at all. That's very important. And we should be, we should be convinced and we should follow what we believe. But rather than trying to say we're better than the other churches, we should try and say, well, what can we do in the world to make sure together more and more people come to faith in Jesus? So rather than trying to focus on what makes us different from other churches, we should focus on what makes us the same and how can we follow Jesus together in doing his mission. And actually, Penticton uh, is, a, is a wonderful community and I think partly because of the size we are, but there is a, a group called the Ministerial that we all believe different things. Our statement of faith have different things in them that we disagree with with each other. But we join together in unity to see how we can help Penticton come to faith in Jesus. Because it's not what separates us, it's what unites us. And so it's focusing on the main thing, keeping the main thing the main thing. And the point of this is that we're actually at war in the world. Do you know that? We are at war. And so the question for us individually and as a church, are we sitting on the sidelines or are we in the battle? Because I would argue if we're, if we're too busy trying to figure out if we're different from other churches or better than other churches or what makes us stand out from other churches, then we're sitting on the sidelines. Because the war is the war for souls. The war is the war against death and destruction in the world. Now, I'm also not a, a huge history buff, but I do like watching movies about history, including uh, World War II movies. And Kerson has remarked a few times how uh, there are so many movies made about World War. We just, we focus so much on these movies. And I think one of the reasons is, is because we do realize that there is a war on. That war is in our minds, that war is in our thoughts. And one of the things that made World War II and World War I together, but World War II especially uh, so huge. And the reason it was called a world war is because it affected pretty much everyone in the entire world. There would be pretty much no one in the world during that time that was alive that would say, what war? I don't know. Even, even if your family, even if your friends, even if you didn't know someone directly that was in the fighting, you were affected by war because you had rationing, you had jobs that were more open or creative. And some very interesting things happened during World War II, including a huge amount of women went into the workforce because the men were off fighting, so they needed to. So women that were no longer, or that before had been prevented from working because of societal expectations were now working in jobs no one would have thought of before. Factory workers and all of these things. And uh, so this war affected so many people. But everyone knew the war was on. We're at a spiritual war that affects absolutely everyone in the world. But not everyone knows the war is on. One of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest victories of the enemy is that he's convinced people that he doesn't exist. He must just laugh about that. You know? 
And I don't want to talk about him too much because it's whatever. Like, I don't want to give him our attention. I want to give Jesus our attention. But there's a war on. And are we focused on that war? Are we focused on what we're going to do or we're supposed to be doing? Sometimes we get distracted by secondary things that don't matter. And to give you an example of this, uh, I got this from a book I read. But this guy, uh, imagine, imagine this person comes into the ER. They just had a terrible car accident. They, they have blood everywhere. Their arm is broken. Uh, they have scrapes and bruises everywhere. And imagine they come into the, the, tr- uh, the ER room. And then a nurse starts getting out wipes and band-aids and just starts covering up all the little scrapes. Starts with the scrapes. And then goes, oh, their arm is broken. I should fix their arm. And fix their arms. But imagine if this person has internal bleeding. Now, those scrapes, those need to be cleaned. Those need to be covered up. The, The arm needs to be mended for sure. But if you don't take care of the internal bleeding, nothing else you do matters because that person will die. And that's what, that's what it's like when we focus on things that, that are secondary and don't matter. We're focusing on that broken arm or we're focusing on the cuts or the scrapes or the bruises. But we're not focusing on the most important matter. And now, I really, I really want to ask permission. And you don't have to say it out loud because I'm going to do it either way. But can I be totally honest and frank for a few minutes about our church? Now, I want to I start this by saying I love our church. I love our church family. I love our people here. If I didn't, then I wouldn't be the pastor here because I think one of the primary things about being a pastor is that you have to love the church. You have to love the people. And so because I love the church and because I love our people and because I'm committed to our church, sometimes I have to say some hard things. Is that all right? And feel free to come and talk to me in person about this after. Because I'd love to. I'd love to have a conversation about this. But sometimes as a church, we lose sight about what our point of our church is. Sometimes we lose sight that our point of our church is to make disciples. To have people come to faith in Jesus. Now, about a year and a half ago, as a church uh, leadership, we had a prayer retreat. And we, we were trying to talk about things. Uh, this was right around when we did the Growing Young study, and this was under Pastor Neil's leadership. He led this, and we talked about this, but we asked a hard question. We said, how many people have come to faith in our church, in Jesus, over the past year? And the room was silent like this, because we couldn't think of anybody. And then we asked, what about the year before? Silence. Something was wrong. Something was wrong. Something continues to be wrong. Because that's not right. Now, I can't make people come to faith in Jesus. That's not, I can't, I'm, I'm not able to make someone make that choice. But a church is called to be disciples who make disciples. And so if we just keep going, how we've done things we have to recognize it's not working at one point or another. And we have to do something different. Maybe something we've never done before. And so that is the whole point of, of church, is to be disciples who make disciples. Now, I want to preface that, or end that by saying, I don't think it's lack of love. I don't think it's lack of trying. And I don't think it's lack of that we don't want people to come to Jesus. 
I think if I asked every single person here, you would say, yes, I want people to come to Jesus. Yes, I want to see our church growing. Not just in numbers, because numbers is whatever. I want to see it growing in the amount of people who give their lives to Jesus. I want to see it growing and thriving. And I think that God has allowed us, I've said this before, to go through hard things because he has great plans for us. Now, this church has had great, uh, a great pastor who loved our church for so many years and invested in us and poured into us and prepared us to do the next step, which is to move forward and to come and see people know Jesus. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know the, the, the picture that we're all going to come together, but that is the whole point of this let's dream. Is I think, I, think we need to, I think we need to access the hard reality that something is wrong, something is missing, something is broken. But then we need to dream big dreams and come together. And I think one of the questions that I want us all to be able to answer at the end of this, and it's going to be not just this Friday, but it's going to be other times, is am I willing to give up what makes me comfortable about coming to church? Am I, gonna give, am I willing to give up my preferences in order to see people come to faith in Jesus? Am I willing to maybe be a little bit uncomfortable in order to see the next generation come to put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus? And I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I'm hoping and I'm inviting all of us that it's not me telling our church what we're going to do but it's us coming together to create this picture and this vision and this dream and then do whatever it takes to pursue that dream. There's a church uh, in the States that says they're willing to do anything short of sin to see people come to faith in Jesus. They're willing to do whatever it takes. And I think that with time, we'll come to that same place. That we'll, we'll be able to come up here every Sunday and celebrate something else. Another beautiful story about someone sharing the gospel with somebody and somebody coming faith in Jesus. I believe God has great hopes and great dreams for our church. I do. And I hope you do as well. I don't say this, these hard things. I don't say that we're missing the mark to try and make us feel beat up. That's not my point here. But to encourage us that we can do better. That we can see lives changed. And so I want to I want to I want to speak to us in a way this Friday that we can celebrate the past because God has moved in our church. We've had times when we've had uh, dozens more people, where we've had young families, where we've had kids, where we've had lots of people here. God has moved, and God will move again. That's my hope. That's my dream. And so there are so many good things that we could do as a church, but I want to focus on the best things. I want to focus on what's unique about our church in Penticton. We have a role as a Penticton church in the Nazarene that we are meant to fulfill as a church here in Penticton. That First Baptist won't fulfill, that the Vineyard won't fulfill, that Bethel won't fulfill, that the other churches in town won't fulfill. I think we have a special calling, and I think we'll figure that out together. And we'll move on to do greater things. And so I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. The challenge is simply this. Let's join this fight together. Let's join the fight to see the world transformed. Let's join the fight to see Penticton come to faith in Jesus. Let's join the fight to see the humble 
the, the small, loved, and cared for by our church, by our people. Let's see people's lives transformed. You know, when, when I read the Gospels, and I, I read some of the amazing things that people did, sometimes I get intimidated and go, I don't know if I have that much faith. I don't know. Can, can God still do those amazing things? But you know what? He can, and he does. You know, miracles aren't just something that happens over there with other people. You know, it's not just somebody's friend who tells somebody about Jesus, and then they come to radical life change. That's my story. You know, it, we, sometimes we think it's complicated, but it's not. I had somebody who cared enough about me to invite me to church. That's all it took. God did the rest, and that's all it takes. It's for us to love people enough to be out there, sharing our lives with them, being intentional. And so maybe, maybe we've been coasting, maybe we've been sitting on the sidelines, and maybe we've gotten distracted and focused on secondary things that aren't the most important. But that's not the end of the story. Re-enlist in the fight. Step up and serve. Pray like lives depended on it, because they do. Pray like you care about what happens about the eternity of those you love. You know, I read this, or I had this story at uh, Rush. Uh, this girl, she was a youth leader, and she pulled out this piece of paper that had obviously been folded and refolded a whole bunch of times. It had all these things written in different colors. And uh, the one youth that she was with uh, said, what's that? And she said, these are all the people I'm praying for that would come to know Jesus. And she'd write, them, write down the names over and over again, and then she'd pr- take out that list, and it would be in her pocket all the time. I would love that each one of us had people in our hearts every day that we were praying for, that we were sharing life with, that they would come to know Jesus. So if you would call this church your home, that you would say, I, I, this is my home, this is my church, then come out and let's, let's talk about this together. Let's pray about this together. Let's dream together for what God is going to do in the future of our church. And let's, let's imagine that this time in five years, our church is going to be overflowing that we're going to have to have multiple services because there's been hundreds of people that have come to their faith in Jesus. Does that get you excited? Is that something that's scary? Because it scares me sometimes too, but that's a God-sized dream. But whatever that's going to look like, whatever we come up with together, you are invited to be a part of that. So the three kind of practical things this week, join the fight. So step up and step in in faith. The second is to pray. Pray for God's guidance for our future. And the third is participate. So come on out this Friday to the Let's Dream. If you can't be there, uh, you have to be at home, you have to be somewhere else, then pray with us that night. Pray for us this week. And this won't be the only opportunity. This is just the first opportunity. This is going to be a process. I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be a process of time. Now, would you please join me in prayer as the worship team comes up? Jesus, I thank you for who you are. Jesus, you love each one of us here, and you love this church. Jesus, we don't want, we don't want to not, we don't want to be distracted. We don't want to be focusing on things that don't matter. We don't want, we don't want to hear we miss the mark. We want to follow after you. We want to be disciples who make disciples. We want to be people who share you with our friends because you're the most important thing in the entire world to us. Lord, if we've, the times that we've fallen short, when maybe we've given into fear, when we've given into worry, when we've, when we've given into selfishness, when we've given into whatever it is, when we've gotten distracted, Jesus, 
I pray that you would forgive us, but that we wouldn't stay there, we wouldn't feel guilt, we wouldn't feel shame, but we would feel encouraged to step out in faith again, to step up as a church and to do whatever it takes to see the next generation come to faith and hope in you, Jesus. Jesus, we don't want this church to end at us. We want this church to be here for hundreds of years until you come again, whenever that is, Jesus. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's as soon as I'm done preaching, Lord. Maybe it's thousands of years away. Either way, we want to be faithful to what you have given us. Give us hope. Give us encouragement. Give us joy as we step forward in faith. Lord, I'm so excited for what you're going to do. Lord, we love you. May we declare that with our lives this week as we go from here, as we leave this place later in a few minutes. But now, may we celebrate you. May we lift our hands in praise. May we have, have joyous praise to who you are, Jesus, because you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Thank you for our salvation, and thank you for what you are going to do in our church in the days, the weeks, and the years to come. In your mighty and precious name, all God's people said, amen.